My guest today is Victoria Murphy, Professor of Applied Linguistics at the University of Oxford. She is an expert in EAL and that is our topic for this episode. Hello Victoria. Hello. So should we start by looking at prevalence of EAL in the system, in the school system? Um, intuition would say it's gone up markedly in perhaps the last 10 years. Is that intuition correct? That's indeed correct. Uh, the proportion of EAL children in both primary and secondary has actually doubled in the last 20 years. Okay. So uh, I think it's approximately 20% at primary and just under that for secondary. And is there any, I mean, intuition again would suggest that was concentrated very much in the, the larger urban centres of the country. Mm -hmm. Is that correct as well or, or are you finding most schools now will have an experience of, of supporting an EAL student? Yes. <laughs> yes to both uh, in the sense that I think the, the, certainly the strongest concentrations of EAL pupils are found in London and London area, greater London area and in big metropolitan centres. But it is also true that you will find EAL children and pupils around the country. Um, Yorkshire and the Humber have a fairly high proportion of EAL. Um, and they're everywhere, so um, teachers teaching in schools are likely to encounter EAL children at some point in their career. And when we say EAL, what, what's, what, what's the identification criteria there? That's a very good point to raise, John, <laughs> because it's a, a, a problematic category. It's a category that um, is basically invented, if you like, for the uh, National Pupil Database. Okay. It's a tag in the NPD. Um, and the way it's defined is so general in that it really just highlights children who have another language in the home. Okay. And that's it. It doesn't speak to whether and to what extent the child was exposed to English um, in, since birth or, or in any other context. It doesn't say anything about their proficiency in English. And it doesn't, importantly, say anything about their knowledge of their home language or how proficient they might be in that language. So I think there's a, a tendency for people to assume that EAL means bilingual or, as we say sometimes in the research world, emergent bilingual, because okay. if you're talking about a young child, they may not be fully bilingual yet. But we found in our research sometimes when we've gone into schools and we've... Um, ask the teachers to identify the EAL pupils that we have native speakers of English in the sample, which can often happen because you might have a child who has um, one parent who speaks, say, French and another one who speaks English, but the French parent never speaks French to the, the other parent or indeed to any of the children, mm. and that person would be tagged EAL in the school system. Similarly, children who are indeed raised simultaneous bilinguals, so English is one of their first languages, and therefore have a very high proficiency in English, they would also be tagged as EAL. Similarly, you have the problem that um, a child who's just visiting from another country for a short period of time, if their parents are here on some kind of secondment, they're EAL and also children who have just arrived in the country perhaps from uh, in terms of a refugee situation or something like that are also EAL and they're all EAL and they're all treated lumped into the same box if you like um, yet I've just described very different kinds of children in terms of their life experiences massively diverse yeah. massively diverse um, and so anytime that we talk about EAL in sort of general terms, we're really being a bit 
reckless because we are probably uh, obfuscating. We're, we're probably covering up the kinds of complexities that might be relevant for certain subgroups. So is there, um, is that, is, do they do that as well, one for a data collection point of view? But is there a reluctance to call it a literacy problem or call it some, some, something else that's to do with um, vocab knowledge or, or just literacy in general? The EAL is a more helpful term, perhaps, I don't know whether it is or not, to say that these are children who maybe have a very short-term vocabulary or literacy problem. Mm -hmm. Is there another term that could be used that's, that's better? Or? Um, well, actually, one of the issues I have with EAL is exactly what you've just pinpointed, which is that it's used within the construct of a discussion about deficit. Mm. So we automatically assume if it's EAL, there's a problem. So mm. you've just talked about literacy problems and language problems. And it's true that some EAL children have problems. But EAL children, if they are real EAL children and they have another language in the home, they are potentially bilingual children. And if you look at the bilingualism literature in children, you see that there is no problem with being bilingual. In fact, more children, more people in the world are bilingual than monolingual. Okay. So being bilingual is not a problem. It doesn't have to be. And there are as many ways of being bilingual as there are as being monolingual. So mm -hmm. monolingual children have difficulties sometimes with reading, come from disadvantaged backgrounds, sometimes come to school with weak language and communication skills, just like some EAL children. Mm. So I think one of the big problems with EAL in the term, in the way in which we talk about it generally is that it's necessarily a problem. Mm. But it really, really doesn't have to be. Um, and there's a lot of EAL children who are really strong, really good at, at learning, high achievers, really good at reading, have no trouble whatsoever. I guess that leads on to my next question, which is uh, have we got better at supporting EAL children in the system? Or perhaps more knowledgeable, but if we're tagging children with EAL, I guess inevitably you're gonna be, you have negative connotations of that term from the start, and that might not have shifted. Yes, and we've done some work in schools where we've had parents who have been upset that their children have been identified as EAL, um, even though they are bilingual. Mm. Um, so yes, there can be a negative connotation to being EAL, and similarly, some schools might feel that they want to include children as EAL who might be really very proficient bilinguals as well for, for other reasons. Um, so I think, I think we are getting better um, because we have such a high proportion of children who are EAL in the English school system. I think there is um, definitely an improvement on some levels. Uh, we're having this conversation, for example, mm. <laughs> which we might not have had a few years ago. Mm. Um, at some respects, it's worse because a number of years ago when teachers were training, they could, some, they could specialize in EAL. Okay. And they, they decided to get rid of that option uh, just around the time when EAL, the numbers of EAL children were increasing within the school system. That sounds like a sensible policy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure they had their reasons for it at the time, but in hindsight, it seems um, unfortunate that that, that happened. Mm. Um, I think teachers, I think social media really helps in terms of helping teachers understand and get access to information um, and feel more supported. I think we can do a lot better in terms of initial teacher education and supporting and preparing teachers for working with EAL. Um, but yeah, I, I think there's a lot of complexity there and a lot of improvement that needs to be done in terms of 
helping us make uh, better decisions about how to support those EAL children who, who are struggling. And the stats are quite mixed, aren't they? And you know, you've mentioned before that it depends which stats you looked at. Yes. You look at the, uh, how well these EAL children perform in the system. Could you talk a little bit about why there's that disparity, perhaps, and what, that, what those stats tell us? Yeah. Well, if you look uh, recently, um, the government reported that, um, EA, and this was uh, widely reported in the media, that EAL children um, met, were matched or, in, in some respects, exceeded the performance of uh, non-EAL children. Mm. Uh, and depending on which newspaper one read, that was either welcomed or uh, was viewed as a problem. Okay. Um, but the, the more detailed analyses of that data show, just as I said earlier, that because of the heterogeneity, the huge diversity within the population of EAL, just assuming that EAL means you're going to do better than a non-EAL would be a big mistake because mm. there are a number of children within the, the broad church, if you like, of EALness who really do struggle and who really need some focused support and attention. Um, and again, if you don't pay attention to the, the detailed analysis that has come out from places like the Educational Policy Institute recently, for example, um, that would be missed. Mm. And does it, you know, is there any difference between where in the world these children come from? For example, if they are EAL children that have um, lived abroad beforehand, does it matter where they come from? I went to a school recently where uh, there was a, I can't remember the exact um, origin of, of the students, but there was no written language. Mm -hmm. And the, the school was struggling with that element of, of which they hadn't experienced before, mm -hmm. the children there before. Is there any sort of, you know, can we say these are common challenges or would you always get that diversity of challenges? I think we're going to always get diversity of challenges because, as I said before, you're going to get that with monolinguals. Mm -hmm. EALs are, are no different. Mm -hmm. um, you know, some of them are going to be doing fabulously well and some of them are not, and for all the reasons that monolinguals um, vary as well. But you raised a very interesting point about the particular linguistic um, background of an individual mm -hmm. child with uh, EAL. And I think that's something that we haven't really understood very well. So there was a report in, um, that was um, commissioned by the EEF, the Bell Foundation, and another um, organization called the Un Unbound Philanthropy that, um, that was done by a colleague of mine who looked at the NPD. It was published in 2015. And he was able to show that the, the, the real critical variable is ethnicity uh, in terms of predicting um, which groupings or subgroupings of EA EAL children uh, might struggle. And of course, there are particular linguistic profiles that go with specific ethnicities. And a recent, the recent analyses um, of organizations like the EPI, for example, looking at the recent data, also illustrates that specific linguistic subgroupings within EAL are more or less likely to, to have higher or lower attainment. And I think that's something that, uh, from a research point of view, we don't really understand very well from mm -hmm. a linguistic point of view. There was um, a really interesting paper that was just published this year, actually, that um, looked at what they called linguistic distance between the languages that the child was developing. And they were able to identify that that was an important predictor of the child's vocabulary development. So I think this is something that, certainly from a research perspective, we need to start looking at a little bit more carefully um, 
to be able to make more informed um, predictions about where we might expect certain children to, to struggle. By distance, do you mean that perhaps English is too far from their mother tongue, for example? Yes. And that their chances of um, success, if you want to call it that, in it would be better perhaps in a closer language alignment? Well, that's it. Uh, I mean, that's a tricky... Con linguistic distance is a tricky construct mm. to define anyway, uh, and there are different ways in which to do it. Um, but yes, that's generally the idea. The thing is that, as I said, we don't really have enough research because you could predict that similarity could create difficulty okay. because it could create confusion. You assume that something that works like this in your home language works like this in your, your um, other language or English, which could sometimes create mistakes. We call them sometimes false friends. Okay. Whereas sometimes if things are really different, um, there are no false friends. It's very clear. This is very different. This is something new I have to learn. Um, so I think, as I said, it's, it's a bit premature right now to be able to really speak to uh, which languages are going to, uh, or which linguistic groupings could potentially create um, more difficulty for children than others. But I have to say that generally speaking, if you look at the bilingualism literature, um, these sorts of um, distance relationships aren't necessarily going to explain why a child might be struggling with literacy, for example. Mm. They might explain um, particular developmental trajectories in vocabulary. They might explain um, errors that a child might make as they're developing their linguistic knowledge. But I'm, I don't know, I think it's an important area to, to go, um, to, to, to look at much more closely, but um, I also don't know that it's really going to help us make really clear predictions about educational achievement. And is, there any, sure. is there any research as well about uh, proliferation of different languages in a school? So, uh, you know, there's a sort of informal mark, if you like, and they say, oh, 90 different languages are taught in this school. Look mm -hmm. at, you know, this school's really got it bad. But is that actually any more challenging than one or two different languages in the school, spoken in that school? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, how does that work exactly? Well, it doesn't, at one level, make any difference because mm. th those languages don't... The way in which teachers teach EAL children typically, and again, this is a generalization, the linguistic background of the child doesn't figure. The, the concern is the development of English, not the development of their home language. Mm. I think that's a problem. I think we should be developing their home language. And I think educational contexts should be structured so that we can promote bilingualism for all sorts of reasons. And we don't, typically. Mm. Now, of course, you're going to find some teachers who do do that. And that's obviously much easier for a teacher who has the linguistic competence or shares the linguistic competence as the home languages of the children that he or she may, may be teaching. I think for the majority of teachers, though, because of the diversity in schools, it, that's virtually impossible to know all of the languages that you might experience or that the children in your classroom might have. Um, so, so generally, the teaching is about English. It's not about the development of the home language. Mm. Um, which raises another point, actually, which uh, we may come to later, looking at different pedagogies at work. But there's a lot of discussion now in the research literature about trying to use the child's home language as a kind of scaffold and support to help them develop um, knowledge of English. That's interesting, isn't it? I guess then you need to know 
quite a lot about the child. And you need to know your children yeah. <laughs> in order to be the most effective And teacher, I guess that, yeah. again, is a huge amount of diversity. So yeah. on one end, as you said before, the, the child may, may never have lived in another country yeah, exactly. or spoken that language, yeah. but they're still classed as the AL. Yeah. At the other end, you may have uh, you know, someone who's come to this country uh, without their parents. Indeed. We have there's plenty of examples of children like that who are here on their own, refugees from horrific situations who have minimal, minimal experience with English, um, sometimes min minimal experience with school. Mm. Um, you know, English is the least of their problems. So, uh, yes, this kind of diversity within a classroom or a school context does create real challenges for teachers. So if a teacher does have a child with EAL and uh, they've looked into the home life and they do predominantly speak a different language at home, mm -hmm. are there common things that teachers should be doing? Yes, so there are common things that teachers should be doing regardless of the linguistic status of the child, which we, we know from decades of research in, in good teaching. Mm. Um, in terms of children with EAL, um, there are some specifics, uh, and again, it might vary depending on the child and the particular child's needs, but one thing that's really important for all children is that they feel part of the classroom, that they're a valued member of the classroom. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of the children with EAL come from ethnic minorities and have, are either first or second generation immigrants, and there is a lot of unhealthy uh, political rhetoric about immigrants in England at the moment. And mm -hmm. It's been well documented. There have been a number of children with EAL who have been um, at the very unpleasant end of some, some racial and ethnic abuse. Um, so I think schools primarily have to make sure that their um, children from different ethnic and linguistic backgrounds are, are made to feel safe and um, well supported and valued, valued members of the class just like anybody else. Mm. And with parents in that situation, do, do, if the parent doesn't speak English as well, does that add complexity uh, in terms of maybe the child becomes a translator for their mm -hmm. parent or, and just in terms of a school's communication with parents? Yes, yes, it's a real challenge and in fact um, there's been a number of uh, research studies that looked at what I think the term that is often used in this context is language brokers, where older siblings will become like the language broker for their parents who don't speak other languages, or sorry, who don't speak English. Um, and that's a really difficult situation for to put some children in, where mm -hmm. they, they sometimes have to do very challenging adult-based uh, translating for their parents, which, which we would not typically want children to have to get involved with. But, but schools who have high proportions of children with EAL from specific linguistic backgrounds um, can buy in translation services for documents and they can organize face-to-face um, -face meetings with parents, which is often much more effective if mm -hmm. there's a linguistic difficulty or challenge. Um, so lots of schools overcome that um, problem. I guess the earlier question about how many languages are spoken in the school is really, a, uh, as you say, in, in the school context and in the classroom context, it's irrelevant really how many languages you have because of the, um, you're teaching them English. Exactly. But with the parents, then it becomes... A then it does become relevant, mm. absolutely, if the parent can't speak English very well and you need to communicate with them, yeah. 
So I think there are various resources around um, the around the country that try and support families in that way. Do you think there's enough support there? I mean, a lot of this is put on teachers and schools, isn't it? As, yeah. the, as the key sort of, I hate to say it, but it's a, it's a clumsy term, but sort of an integration tool. You know, yes. the school will sort this out because you know they'll they'll up you know they'll give the language to the student, and that student will give the language to their parents. And mm-hmm. is that really where? You know, is it just schools that should be doing that? Should schools be the key per, uh, component in that at all? Mm-hmm. Where does it? Where does the responsibility almost sit? Well, I think schools do have a responsibility, um, but I wouldn't say they have the only re- responsibility there. Um, so schools are uh, important um, carers, if you like, of our children, and they're mm-hmm. shaping our all of our futures by what's happening within them. So I think schools are very important there, but I don't think there's enough support. I don't think there's enough financial support for helping children with particular linguistic um, challenges. Uh, I don't think, as I said earlier, I don't think teachers have historically received enough support. So um, I think initial teacher education programs are, are fraught with, well, there's so much information that you want to try and help a trainee teacher develop and in such a short amount of time mm. that it's really, really hard to, to sort of help prepare the teacher to um, best support children who have EAL. I think that this is a particular challenge because um, EAL as a construct is not a curriculum subject. Mm. So it, it typically is sort of tagged on as an extra session that trainee teachers might receive. Um, But uh, I don't think that's really sufficient. Um, There is a lot of evidence of what we think is really good CPD for teachers uh, as they as they continue to as they develop their work with students. Of course not all teachers can access CPD. Some, I mean, teachers are incredibly busy and finding the time and being able to get away to participate in CPD either sometimes means giving up their weekends or trying to get time away from school, which is extremely difficult to do. So I think that we need to rethink maybe some of the infrastructure there um, to, to, to just tweak things a little bit to make it more possible for more teachers to get more information about um, how best to support linguistically diverse peoples. I guess that goes back to what we were saying about the, how how the the children with AL are dispersed around the country, and mm-hmm. that you, from my experience anyway, you get pockets of excellence almost. Oh, absolutely. And um, then you know, a school that might not be as used to it, they haven't invested in that CPD because it doesn't seem like it something they need. It doesn't seem so relevant. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then a child will come along and the experience of that child can be quite negative yeah. as a result. Yeah, absolutely. That's a real issue. And certainly what happens in London, I mean, we even call it the London effect because there are so many EAL children with EAL in London. Uh, typically, um, LEAs are sort of have more money to support. There are better services available. Um, it, there's Because of the money issue and the higher funding, sometimes this attracts the, the more... Um, shall we say, the more um, experienced teachers. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, there's a lot of issues there. Um, But this is why I was saying it would be useful if we could integrate EIL a bit more in ITE because 
no matter where you are as a teacher in the country, you're going to hopefully have some kind of ITE experience. Mm. And um, if, if EAL could be a more prominent issue within that, then uh, even if you were working in an area where there were very few children who were linguistically diverse, when you did encounter somebody like that, you would hopefully remember your training. <laughs> At least the basic foundations. <laughs> At least the basic foundations, yes. And I think one of the, the, the and there is actually there, there's recent research to show that if you survey teachers about whether whether or not they feel prepared to support children with EAL, they generally feel unprepared. Mm -hmm. So I think teachers themselves feel like that they would like to have more support, more information, and access to information to support them. And so where's the research concentrated at the moment then? I mean, this is an active research area. I mean, I know that you've been working on it for many years and I know many others have. What's the research looked at to this point in the main? And where is it sort of shifting to? Mm -hmm. Well, um, this is an interesting question. We've, we've actually had a lot of research on EAL from different perspectives. Mm -hmm. uh, spent quite a bit of time looking at teachers, as I was just referencing, um, teachers' perceptions, teachers' beliefs, teachers' concerns, mm -hmm. teachers' experiences. So uh, this research is obviously very, very important uh, and serves as a really good springboard for developing other work. Um, it is it tends to be relatively smaller scale studies, and they tend to be somewhat descriptive, okay. which is important and is always a really important first step in doing research. Um, we have less uh, sort of quantitative empirical research, I would say. There is more of this now, but I was involved in preparing a report that was uh, funded by the EEF, the Bell Foundation, and Unbound Philanthropy, which looked at intervention research, educational intervention aimed at supporting the English language and literacy in children with EAL. And sort of our remit, we did a systematic review on studies that had uh, looked at this issue. And we first of all discovered that there were only two studies that were included within uh, the in our sample of studies that were from the UK. Okay. So at that time, and this was a few years ago, there were very few intervention studies available. Now this is going to change because A, I know of other studies that have been published since then, but B, I also know that the EEF is funding some trials now, so hopefully we'll see a change in that. So that's one area I think that, you know, following from a lot of the more qualitative descriptive research that mm. we've had, we're now getting, uh, I think we're going to be seeing more quantitative, hopefully large-scale intervention type studies that can really look at, um, you know, applying an RCT methodology to really look at what's effective. And the other area I think that's really burgeoning within the EAL world is something called translanguaging, which I kind of mentioned before. Mm. Um, translanguaging is, a, is a, a, a little bit of a tricky construct, okay. but, uh, and I hope my colleagues will forgive me, but essentially it, it means drawing from the child's other languages within the English classroom that they can use these other languages as a support as they're 
um, carrying out work within the classroom. Some people would say this is called code switching. Um, other people would say, no, no, translanguaging is very different. But the bottom line is that, as I said earlier, we, look, we often talk about EAL from a deficit model, mm. but a translanguaging approach, um, however it may be implemented, recognizes that the child comes to school with knowledge of another language. Mm. That's a huge resource, and mm. that is something that could really be used as a source of enrichment, not just for that child, but for the non-EAL children in that class if teachers were equipped to use this kind of pedagogical strategy. So we are seeing a lot more research now looking at translanguaging or use of the first language, the home language, in classroom contexts. And I hope that we'll be able to see as the years unfold more focused studies looking at the effectiveness of the use of the L1 for different aspects of educational experience. So we might find that drawing on the child's home language is really, really helpful in certain educational activities, but is useless in others, for example. Okay. We, we just don't know because that type of research is, is still relatively in its infancy. Would, you need, would the teacher necessarily need to know that home language at that point? No. I guess not. No, nope. no. And that's the important point because this is a really highly diverse, linguistically diverse context. Even if a, if a teacher is his or herself multilingual, it's unlikely they're going to know all the languages that might be represented in their classroom. So developing a multilingual pedagogy um, that was proven, as much as that's possible, yeah. effective through very carefully controlled studies, I think is a really exciting way forward for research. And I think we're headed in that direction. So I'm looking forward to how, how does it work at the moment in the examples you've seen if, 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 if say, you're, I guess, in a maths problem? Is it allowing that child, I guess, allowing that child to sort of reason in their own language? Yes, yes, exactly so. Um, if, for example, there, were, there was more than one child in that class who spoke language A, um, it would be allowing those two children to talk about the maths problem in language A as they were trying to work through it. Okay. Um, now, obviously, some teachers are a little concerned about that because if they don't know what their students are saying, they may feel that they've lost control of the situation. Um, but it, th that I think the research that's been done thus far in these sorts of uh, questions has shown that there are there are definite ways of managing these sorts of pedagogy, and I think this is where we need to be going. I guess the, future. the fears are, as well are, are based on an assumption that a child will naturally misbehave, but actually most children given a topic will probably talk about the topic, so, yeah, it's, I think it's, so. it's trusting them a little bit, I guess. I think it's trusting them, yeah. I mean, students by and large are, are good people who want to learn and do <laughs> well. Um, and I think teachers, again, they. I think the majority of teachers haven't really had any training in multilingual pedagogies because it's very new as a, as a sort of research idea. Um, but I think as, as that develops, I think we're going to be in a much stronger position to really be able to speak to effective practice in English schools. And is it, I guess it goes against another problem with implementation there is that like, teachers have this idea of immersion, full immersion to learn a language which is something that, you know, they say if you want to learn French, go and live in France for a year, you know, you'll see how quickly you pick it up. Mm -hmm. And so there's, a, there's perhaps a fear that says, oh, okay, well, if, 
if I'm not immersing that child in English all the time, maybe they're not picking it up as quickly as they could. Is there any research that suggests that in itself as a concept is problematic, that immersion yes. Yeah. yes. So I'm from uh, Canada, and Canadians like to uh, pretend that they invented a very effective bilingual education called French, uh, well, called immersion, modern immersion, okay. uh, and we did it in Canada with French. So a lot of English kids um, who were learning French as a subject at school were not actually very fluent in French, and so a lot of English parents in Quebec wanted to try and help people develop more effective educational programs so their children could improve their French fluency uh, and literacy, and hence the birth of French immersion. And French immersion turned into an incredibly successful educational program where English children who were registered in French immersion programs did far better uh, linguistically in French and also had this comparable um, standards in academic achievement as children who were taught French in a more traditional way. As a consequence, these immersion programs have sort of proliferated around the world. But one of the key criteria of the French immersion program is uh, time in the other language. So immersion is never full immersion. Effective immersion programs are never 100% immersion um, in that other language, or at least they ought not to be, because uh, particularly for a young child, developing their home language is really critical. And there's been other research, mostly within the U.S. context, which have looked at dual immersion programs for EAL children. Um, they're called ELL children in the U.S., just okay. to be confusing, yeah. English language learners. Um, and there are a very high proportion of children who have Spanish as the home language within the U.S. And so educators have developed something called dual immersion where Spanish-speaking, native-speaking children and English-majority language-speaking children are in the same classroom together. And half of the day is spent in Spanish, which helps the Spanish children support their Spanish, but also helps the English children learn Spanish. And then the other half the day, or the other proportion of the day, is spent in English, which helps the English children develop their language arts, but also helps the Spanish-speaking children learn English. And these programs have been found to be very effective. So I think it's a mistake to assume that if we allow children in the UK context to speak their home languages in schools, that this would somehow be bad for them. If anything, as I was suggesting earlier, um, adopting a multilingual pedagogy, if there was a way in which we could try and support the development of the child's home language, all the evidence really is pointing to the fact that this is probably going to be very helpful for their learning of English, the majority language. Mm. And if we do it right, we'll probably help the English native speakers as well. And I guess the school is a reflection of, of the community outside the school. Yeah. And so if you are doing those dual immersion programs, you're actually helping the, the children socially anyway, yep. which is important in terms yeah. of learning because you get happier children if you know, you're, you're creating more socially cohesive units. Yes. But then actually, I guess the hope is that you'll create more understanding in those communities yes. between the languages. Yes, and that's very. it also sends an extremely powerful message um, to the, the Spanish-speaking children in the U.S. context that their Spanish is valued. Mm. It's so valued, in fact, that the English-majority native speaker is learning it alongside them learning the English. So it's a really powerful education program and has been and, and some large-scale evaluation studies has been shown to be quite effective. Um, we have the problem in England uh, and the UK more broadly that we have 
so much linguistic diversity that it's much more challenging to develop programs like that. Because what would the language be other than English? Like, would it be Urdu, or would it be Polish, or would mm. it be, you know, it could be any number of over 300 and something languages yeah. that are represented by our children with EAL in the NPD. So, um, you know, I think there are interesting things to learn from that, but one of the main ones is that developing the child's home language is um, really useful. All the evidence seems to suggest that this not only helps the child in, in all sorts of other ways, like they, they actually develop bilingually and they develop linguistic competence in more than one language, but there's also evidence to suggest that that actually helps them learn English better as well. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And I guess my final question then is that uh, when a teacher's talking and they have students with VAL in the classroom, we had a chat earlier at an event in London about colloquial language mm -hmm. and, and the language a teacher uses mm -hmm. and how much thought goes into that process. And, and you were saying that actually a lot of those sort of colloquial languages is where the, 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 the child might struggle most. Mm -hmm. It's not the academic language necessarily. Yeah. Do you want to talk a bit more about, about that and how teachers could perhaps try and counter that? Sure. So um, one of the things that we're, we're looking at in, in our research group at Oxford is looking at these sort of extended aspects of vocabulary knowledge. So um, vocabulary essentially comes in all shapes and sizes. Um, we typically think of vocabulary as single word units. And if we're thinking of the, a vocabulary on a page, it's the bit of language with a space on either side. Mm. But, but vocabulary um, as a construct can, can be all sorts of different things. Um, and importantly, it can actually contain lots of different words all together to make up a unit that has a specific meaning. So obvious examples of this would be idioms, um, like it's raining cats and dogs does not actually mean <laughs> that it's raining cats and <laughs> yeah. dogs, but it means something else and you have to go beyond the, the meaning of the individual components. We have other things called collocations, which are very similar to idioms where words go together more frequently than you would predict by chance. So I made the, I used the example in the event you referred to of in order to. Mm -hmm. This is a kind of a phrase that together means something slightly different perhaps than the individual elements within the phrase. It's um, a, probably a good example of some academic language that we would use, you know, I am going to heat this solution in order to determine what the outcome, whatever it might be. As soon as you start thinking about it, you think we probably use that phrase we far too much. We use it yeah. a lot. And I think one of the things we were talking about earlier is the fact that because of these sorts of multi-word phrases are made up of usually individual words that themselves are quite straightforward. like. Another example is by the way. Mm. By the way <laughs> are three simple words that quite beginner learners are going to understand, but by the way as a phrase means something quite different. Mm. And so the, the real challenge for learners, and this is true for anybody really, but is potentially more true for emergent bilinguals, is that they will be fooled into thinking they understand it. Mm. And we've done some research to show that indeed that is exactly what happens, that children and sometimes teachers think that they understand what these words mean. But we've also shown that these sorts of words, these sorts of vocabulary items make unique contributions to reading comprehension. Okay. So I guess the thing about the, the, the comment for teachers would be that the curriculum 
needs to be language attentive. Mm. Uh, we tend to teach vocabulary items that are specific to topics, um, like, you know, uh, if we're talking about deserts, we might teach the word arid because that's a relatively low frequency, low frequency word that uh, you wouldn't necessarily expect the average child to know. But you're not typically going to be teaching the child by the way. Yeah. And I'm not expecting teachers to do that, but I think what's important is that teachers need to understand um, or we need to help support teachers in, in uh, recognizing the importance of language with a capital L across everything that they're doing, um, whether they're the English teacher or the MFL teacher, mm -hmm. is, is irrelevant. Language underpins everything. And uh, the curriculum would benefit from being more language attentive. And that wouldn't just support children with EAL, but it would support all children. Victoria, thank you very much. Thank you.